and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where our brilliant authors explore how they get inspired through a series of objects they bring into the studio. I'm Katie Brand, and today I'm joined by a writer and comedian. He's one of the researchers behind the BBC's QI programme and co-host of the spin-off podcast No Such Thing as a Fish, which has been downloaded over 200 million times. And his book, The Last Day, is a thriller set in 2059 in which the world has stopped turning. Half of it is in darkness and the other in perpetual sunlight. Scientist Ellen Hopper receives a letter from her old tutor that could change everything, but brings with it extreme danger. Its author is here. He's called Andrew Hunter Murray. Welcome. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thanks Thank for you for me. joining us. No, m- my pleasure. So you've brought with you some objects that have inspired this book and your work in general, which we'll get to in a moment. But this book, to call it a page turner, I think is an understatement. I mean, I am just ripping through it, uh, being late for all kinds of meetings, not eating, forgetting to drink, uh, all of that. So, But it's a huge idea. There's a lot of science in it. There's a lot of ideas. You've created a whole world that's set in the future, but at the same time, it's it's very thrilling and exciting. So just let us in a bit on how the idea first came for this. I've been visiting my parents and I was walking back to the railway station and... How long ago was this? This was about three years ago, I think, three and a bit. I just got an image in my head, don't know where from, of the world hanging in space and stopped. No no more rotation, just a, a line down one side of it. And that just sort of popped into your head? Yep, don't know where from. Um, and I don't want to sort of, you know, analyse it too much no, in no. case it never happens again. Yeah. But when that image occurred to me, the main thing I thought was, I wonder what would happen, you know. Firstly, how could that ever happen, which I, I researched later on. But mainly... What happens next? What happens to the oceans? What happens to plant life? What happens to uh, animals? What happens to politics? What happens to, you know, people's sleep patterns mm. when you you can't ever sleep in darkness again unless you're in a room underground? Mm. Or, you know, what happens, what happens to the underground? What happens to all of it? I got so enthusiastic about it, I went away and I just wrote for a, a couple of months the world of this book. And there's quite a lot of science in there. I mean, you have to sort of follow a thread of how this could plausibly happen and then the knock-on effect on... I mean, I think one of the really interesting things early on is about the immediate sort of disruption, even in a millisecond of slow, to GPS systems. From your work on QI, which must have given you a huge breadth of knowledge, because you are there behind the scenes making sure that the on-screen talent sort of knows what's happening, what these actual facts, these quite interesting facts are. (laughs) So did you draw on some of that immediately to be able to explore the science or did you have to do a lot of research? A bit of both. Uh, So some of the facts that we'd found out through our work for QI ended up in the book. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, And then a couple of colleagues uh, knew that I was working on this idea and one of them sent me a link to a New Scientist article all about these planets called Hot Jupiters, which are real planets, we've observed them, which are... um, locked in orbit with their stars and so those are really hellish places you know half of it is at several thousand degrees and half of it is completely completely frozen i managed to contact a few scientists i had a buddy who's an astrophysicist so i wrote to her and she talked to her colleagues very kindly and sent back a a list of you know options there was a lot of a lot of research which i I really enjoy Mm. and and that's the the thing which 
Robert Harris's latest novel, The Second Sleep, goes into this um, in a really nice way, which is how precise the systems we all rely on are. No one thinks about GPS from one end of the day to another. We just look at Google Maps and think, oh, okay, well, I need to be over there. <laughs> if it gets slightly out of kilter, the system is stuffed. One of the things I've been thinking about the book is that this is not going to happen. There won't be a hypervelocity star passing by that drags the Earth's rotation to a stop. Which is the the very plausible, when you read it, <laughs> explanation for why this is happening all of a sudden to the Earth, that a huge, supermassive, super dense object yeah. passes by and the gravitational pull of that reverses the Earth's spin yeah. and eventually slows it to a stop. Yeah. And you call that in the book the initial period, the slow, mm. and then stop and it's set in Britain uh, in the near future and and we're very firmly after the stop with everybody dealing with the fact that half the world is burnt to a crisp and the other half is in frozen darkness and there's a small sliver of sort of land of which Britain is a part which is vaguely habitable Mm. so that's where we find ourselves and our hero uh, Ellen Hopper, who's yeah. a brilliant hero. So uh, tell us a bit more about her and what, what's going on with her. Oh, well, she uh, she's an oceanographer by training. At the start of the novel, she is living uh, offshore. She's on one of the, uh, the North Atlantic rigs that Britain owns and operates. She has cut herself off from not only Britain, but from a lot of her old life. You find out why over the course of the book, and it relates to it relates to her past, and it relates to the man she is summoned back uh, to see. She's she's called back to this crumbling London. Uh, that kind of kickstarts the whole journey of mm. the character, and yeah, she is sort of forced back into contact with her old life and to confront these things. And so. Let's talk about your first object, which is related uh, to Ellen Hopper's job. Mm. And it's an iceberg with a length of rope around it. You haven't brought an iceberg in, (laughs) but we'll use the power of our imaginations. Great. Yeah. um, Didn't get past the climate change test. Yeah, didn't Uh, get past reception. (laughs) Um, But um, tell us why you, you found that an inspiring aspect of writing this book. Well, when she's on the rig, one of the jobs that Hopper has is to go out uh, with the crew when there's an alarm sounded for an iceberg passing by. And in this new world, the the ocean currents have changed, but a lot of the world is still frozen. A lot of the oceans are still frozen on the other side, so there are icebergs. And one of her jobs when an iceberg is approaching the rig she lives on is to go out with a boat crew and literally lasso the iceberg Uh, and drag it until it's no longer on a collision course with the rig, and then release it. And this is one of the facts that I found out during my QI work, which is that this really happens. There are rigs which are in the path of icebergs, and there are... There are teams really? who are basically iceberg cowboys. <laughs> and I, I phoned one of them up during my research for the podcast we do, and I had a good old chat with him. And uh, he was quite cagey as well. And um, he really? thought, I th- well, I think... Because he was, he was saying... It's look, very oversubscribed, <laughs> the iceberg lassoing business. You don't want my job, do you? I think because it's, it's all about the satellites. That's where the technology really is, is if you can see a satellite approaching a rig, that's when it's useful information to have. You know, So he was more on that side of it. And then they just dispatch a you know, team to, to deal with it. I found that very evocative, You know, the idea of these people wrangling an iceberg onto a new course. So the book opens with Hopper on a boat being dispatched to what looked like an iceberg when it set off the alarms, but it is not an iceberg. It's a a boat which has been drifting for years. Yeah, it's a kind of upsetting scene because people on this boat are no longer alive. You know, it's... um 
And they seem to have been dead for quite a long time. They have, yeah, yeah. So the, the sense is that this was possibly a refugee boat from another part of the world. And it brings out this whole kind of theme of the book. It's not a sort of front and centre, but it's in the background all the time of displacement, climate refugees. Did you deliberately want to open up a parallel discussion about climate change or is that just something that emerged? No, very much so. I mean, as, as soon as I had the initial idea for the book, I thought, oh, well, this is a, a world in which the climate is, you know, so, so much more important even than it is to all of us now. I mean, it really has the power of life or death over you. I wanted it to be a book that, you know, holds up a mirror to the next 50 years of human civilization because it's a, it's a world in which people are driven from their homes in response to a changing climate. That's And that's not sci-fi. That is, that is happening now. I didn't want to write a lecture and I didn't want to write a an on the nose nailed on allegory saying this is what's happening here but I think we're all going to have to think about this and countries fortunate countries such as our own which are a little further away from the equator um and which may not have such you know disastrous fallout from a warming world are going to have to think about these things. Yes. So. I mean, you're right in the sense that it doesn't feel on the nose. Because it's a thriller and it's exciting, you don't feel like you're being lectured at. But in the background is this very, very serious problem that's very real. Even to the extent that I walked out this morning, shut the door, and walked into lovely, beautiful, bright London sunshine yeah. and actually felt a kind of shiver of terror <laughs> for the first time because of having read this, of just thinking, actually... You know, things that can seem nice now, are, you know, are going to destroy our way of life. I mean, do you feel yourself a bit frightened having written it? Yeah, yeah, it, it did change the way I was thinking about it. And I, I know exactly that feeling that you describe of discomfort. You think, God, I, I didn't actually need even my big jumper today. Mm. And it's it's not as uh, it's not as pleasant a feeling as everyone thought it might be yes, because exactly. you sense these early tremors of something which is going to completely change the face of the earth. Yeah, so that was all very uh, very present in my mind when I was when I was trying to come up with this much much worse earth than the one we've got now. Yes, and the dystopian aspect of it is that they know it's coming and it's coming so you know they can see and feel the the earth slowing yeah. and that just is a very frightening sort of chilling and because it's removed from what's actually happening on earth it's also yeah. quite exciting and you just want to sort of keep reading it and finding out more about how this could have happened. There is a word. Oh, it's a and it's one of these fabulous German uh, compound words made up of about 16 others and it's something like ruinen and kampfenheit or something like this. But it's the the love of ruins and the that that there's that old saying that more beautiful even than a beautiful thing are the ruins of a beautiful thing mm. and there is a a strong tendency to be interested in that in in all of us i think i think everyone is slightly interested in the end of the world not just in terms of how you think you might do but an awareness that this century is the most extraordinary one that has ever happened on this planet to our species. I mean, we we are in completely uncharted territory. No species has ever before been able to change the surface of the Earth and the contents of the atmosphere by their collective actions. Richard Buckminster Fuller, the great scientist and communicator, he had this phrase. He said, we are on spaceship Earth. There is no manual. We are the pilots between us. It's up to us to decide how we're going to fly this thing. Mm. And when you when you zoom out and look at it like that, you think, God, he's right. This is Spaceship Earth, and it's currently listing a bit, and 
there doesn't seem to be anyone on the bridge, you know. But also that sense of it's not just about the kind of creep creep of climate change. It's about how vulnerable we are in the universe where yeah. random event. I mean, we had this unexplained item coming through passing us, you know, oh, yeah. the, I can't remember what they called it, the Umua or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although they later found it probably wasn't cigar shaped. It was probably, it might well be a very oh. thin flat disc. Oh, nice. So they would say it might be a solar sail from a, from a long extinct uh, civilization. I, I know, so. not even crazy people are saying that, like real, <laughs> real scientists. Wow. So, but that sense, again, I think that people find quite exciting about sci-fi and books and everything to move it away from the climate change aspect, that the sense of us being in a vast unknown universe and anything could change at any time. Mm. Is that also something you've wanted to get to grips with? I think so. Although that's, God, that's pretty ambitious stuff for a first novel. Well, <laughs> it's an ambitious first novel and you pulled it off, so you might as well uh, carry on. Well, I, I mean, I <laughs> I do love, I think probably everyone loves those, I call the moments of zooming out. There's a big moment at the end of, uh, this is where finally I'm using my degree, the end of Chaucer's Troilus and Crusade, where Troilus dies on the fields of the Trojan War and he, he floats up above his own body and he understands the insignificance of the Trojan War in that moment. Right at, right at the end of this great long epic poem, Chaucer zooms out and says... This doesn't matter, you know. This is this is not important compared with everything else. And so I wanted to. I think I think I was inspired to have some moments of perspective, perspective, like yeah, and planetary perspective. Then again, there's the fact that we are the only life we know about anywhere. It's probably important that we don't muff it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then just to bring it right down to something a little bit more domestic and, and possibly <laughs> banal, I was also curious of how in the book you kept track of all the different parts of the globe that are in heat in the cold side. Mm. Did, did you literally colour in a map or did you have something physical to refer to or did you just hold it all in your head? I've got a little globe which I was given as a toy when I was about 10 years old and that's that's in my flat and uh, I, I span it around quite a lot looking for exactly where I wanted everything to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and America is on the dark side, it's on the cold side. Same for the furthest reaches of China on the other side and Australia. I mean, goodness knows if people in Australia are going to like the book because it doesn't feature very heavily because, it, mm. you know, there's, a, there's this division and, you know, a lot of geopolitics arises out of that mm-hmm. new... Um, reality. So yeah, I spent a lot of time with the globe, um, spinning <laughs> around. I knew, obviously, I, I wanted to uh, write what you know, so I wanted to write something set in Britain. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. Uh, so I knew that Britain would be in the, the habitable region. Yeah. But also, so I always like reading things about little bits of decay. You know, it's always nice to think, oh, how are you going to describe Camberwell in this new time? How, how's, you know, how's Surrey going to come off? Like, what's it? And you sort of talk about the, sort of, mm. the people who live a bit wild in the woods near Wandsworth oh, yeah, or the something. Woodsman, think, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, I love all that kind of stuff. And I know other people do too. Just this sort of, and that sense of what would, like you say, what would I do in this mm. situation? There's that great quote, I think, that goes around um, every now and again of like, whatever you're doing now is what you would do. <laughs> <laughs> However you're reacting to the political strains now oh, is gosh. probably how you behave. Yeah. yeah, so I just sort of continue to write Conti- comedy yeah. and, yeah, <laughs> yeah, ignore and it, pretend yeah. it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love books that I describe as, they're not kind of hard sci-fi as it were, as in you're not you're not on any other planets or you know very few lasers are deployed. Like, for example, The Power by mm. Naomi Alderman, which is such a great premise. Women develop the ability to deliver large bolts of power through their hands. It, it evolves quite slowly, but over the period of about 
40 years, certainly every woman can do it. The physical balance of power on which so much of society has been founded changes. You change one thing and you follow what happens. Mm -hmm. And that is a you know, that is such a brilliant idea. I think pretty much every writer, when they heard that, thought, oh, yes. of course, a lot but of foreheads what, being slapped. What you've just said, and you just did again. Uh, <laughs> but I think what um, what that, that line there, you just said, you know, change one thing and then follow what happens. I think that's, that's a great sort of basis for anyone who would be interested in writing their own sci-fi sort mm. of type book. Let's move on to your next object okay. now. It's a station clock with an extra hand. Uh, <laughs> so tell us a bit about why why you've decided to uh, choose that as your object. Well, this is a, this is actually a bit of QA um, stuff. In one of the really early editions of the podcast, we talked about uh, station time, which was a, a thing. Time was not standard. When accurate mechanical clocks were first built, you know, noon was when the sun was at its very highest point above you. And when railway timetables were introduced, this was the first time that Britain had worked on, you know, everyone's running to pretty much the same time to the minute. Mm. Before that, you just say, well, the stagecoach will be in tomorrow or whenever. Which so, I think, given the current state of the railways, probably would suit them better. <laughs> if you've yeah. got no concept of when it's coming, it can't ever be late. Exactly. Oh, it's very <laughs> philosophical, isn't it? Yeah. But no, go on. So what? So, so there was suddenly this slight problem that... Noon in Bristol is actually 11 minutes different to noon in London. If you're being really precise astronomically, noon is different. And that's why time zones developed. Yeah. But I think people had this sort of concept that they sort of vaguely know that in the sense that they think, well, yes, agricultural labourers got up when the sun up, went to bed yeah. when the sun down. But you mean not just people sort of looking at the sky and going, oh, well, it's about noon yeah. uh, because the sun's in its highest point. Actual clocks in those cities were set slightly differently yeah, for people to look at. So in Bristol, the midday reading on a clock, on an actual mechanical clock, would be different yeah. to the mechanical reading of a clock in Manchester at noon. Yes. And so... Railways had this problem that, you know, your trains might be running 11 minutes late. If you if you say it's going to be there at noon, well, it might get there at noon on London time, but it won't be there at noon on Bristol time. Mm. So they developed this idea, which they called railway time. And clocks had a third hand in stations saying, well, this is the ra- the official railway time. I think it's so interesting because it's one of the times which I'm really fascinated by where our technology and the way we live develop to a new level and we suddenly realise things are not as they were. You know, the 18th and 19th centuries are full of examples like that, changes in calendars or or whatever you might like, and you know, changes about the understanding of the human body. And so I'm really fascinated with those times in history where we had to make a, a tweak based on something new we'd invented. Mm-hmm. Then, oh, yes. Okay. It's more complicated than we thought. But in your <laughs> book, the, the concept of time is changing because of the slow, mm. as you call it, the, the, the slowing down of the Earth's spin. So, and you have this brilliant thing of there are no more real sunsets or sunrises, and people uh, watch them for nostalgia on yeah. kind of old projectors just so they can see one again. Or, or this brilliant idea that the government put them out on the TV so people have a concept of the time of day uh, because people just like to see a sunrise and a sunset. And it really remind me I went to a wedding in very north Sweden in June many years ago and a lot of us went and we were there for five or six days and it never really got dark and everyone went nuts oh, really? I mean a few of the a handful of the people were slightly had a propensity to go a bit nuts it <laughs> didn't take much but those of us who were a bit more sort of pegged to the ground I mean it, it didn't take long it took four nights of no dark for my body to not quite know is it breakfast is it dinner yeah. 
is it sleep time now? It would get to one or two in the morning and I'd look at my... And I had no idea. I honestly thought it was about 8pm. Really? Uh, my internal body clock went within five days. The whole concept of time can be very quickly disturbed and mm. then people really don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Did you disturb yourself sometimes? <laughs> like, I disturb in... myself on a daily basis. <laughs> uh... But I mean, did you actually like... Because there were moments where I just thought, oh my God, this could so easily unravel so fast. If I discovered something that I thought would send a little chill up the spine, I wrote it down really fast and made right. sure it got in the final book. I like the idea of setting the book 30 years after the stop, mm. because now everyone has acclimatised, for better or worse, to the new reality. Things have changed a great deal. And I, w- I wanted to write about a system that was not destroyed. You know, it's not. this is not apocalyptic. Um, it is... Um, is decayed, you know, and I'm I'm r- really interested by systems which are keeping going, but they're clearly limping quite badly. Can't imagine what about the modern state of global politics. Well, yes, makes I me was interested. going to come to that. Yes, I mean there are <laughs> things about the Britain of your book where they've closed the sea borders and created barricades that, you know, the government that's in charge has a bit of a question mark over it in terms of its agenda and motives. Oh, yeah. um, again, like, not like the kind of sideways or parallel sort of track to climate change, the, the political aspect of the book is also very powerful and interesting and prescient. And again, was that something you were deliberately doing? Or did, as you wrote, did you just think, oh, my God, there's so much more to this? This is just getting bigger and bigger in my hands. Sort of thing. I, I, think it, I think it was one of the first thoughts I had after, after that image uh, arrived in my head uh, that this has a bearing on the the country we're living in and also on the the politics of the whole world i mean we we're seeing lots and lots of countries where there are very strong divisions whether it's demographic geographical social between different groups of people there seems to be uh, a sense in which a lot of empathy is being left uh, on the wayside as we go. It's it's harder to n- not judge someone with different opinions to you for whatever reason. So I wanted to write about a, a world that was divided very starkly and divided in terms of its uh, equality as well. So that was, that was definitely part of it. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, the brilliant sci-fi writer, she said that science fiction books shouldn't tell you about the future. They should tell you about now. And I really like that line. And I only found I only read that line after I finished the book. So I was frantically thinking, oh, God, I hope I tried to do that. Mm, I think you have. Glad, glad to hear it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we can get the fuller picture. There is a moment early on in the book where we get a perspective of what this world was like. So let's hear a bit from the audiobook now. Now, 30 years after it all ended, the slow seemed the most natural thing in the world. It felt quaint to imagine people reacting to it with shock. Hopper knew she was one of the last, before, children, born four years before the planet's rotation finally stopped. She was a rarity. There had been plenty born since, of course, but the birth rate had plummeted in those final years. The world had paused, waiting for the cataclysm, and those children already young had been treated like royalty, fed well, spoiled whenever possible, as if in premature apology for a ruined planet their parents could not mend. But during those years, new children were perceived at best as an extravagance, at worst as a cruelty. Why bring a child into a world winding itself down? 
the chaos and shortages at the end of the slow had kept the planet's libido in check. That was The Last Day, written by my guest Andrew Hunter-Murray and read there by Gemma Whelan, who I think is best known for playing Yara Greyjoy in Game of Thrones, uh, amongst many, many oh, other things. She is amazing. I She's mean, phenomenal, isn't she? Spoiler alert, one of the very few characters tough enough to actually survive to the end of Game of Thrones. Hats off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got to be pretty good in that world to make it through. Yeah. and um, so Did I, you have any uh, input into casting Gemma to read the book? Because she does a brilliant job and she sounds... She, it's so nice nice to hear a voice that you immediately go yes that's the voice something like tim McInerney reading the porpoise by mark haddon was mm. phenomenal and this again as soon as i hear her voice i just think yes that's the voice yeah. so were you able to have any input in that or is that just a sort of happy a happy occurrence well before they suggested any names of people who might read it uh, i was lobbying very strongly for uh, me um, right, for one Andrew Hunter Murray to read it. <laughs> you price it on a bit, but just, just a suggestion. Yeah, just a thought. Because I thought, oh, well, I, I read, I talk on the podcast we do, Fish, all the time. So, And then uh, they said, well, well, possibly, possibly, Andrew, but let's just have a look at some of the names we've considered. And Gemma's name was on the list. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, of course. She she um, read it fabulously. And she has a, 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 you know, a wonderful voice and a wonderful sensibility about it. I mean, she really... To me, she sounds like Hopper. I can I, imagine and I Hopper completely being her. agree. And it's not a first person narrative, but to mm. have a voice that suddenly feels so right as the voice of your heroine Hopper just is is a great sort of boon, I think, yeah, actually. Definitely. Um, in terms of hearing the, the work you've uh, written read out loud, is this sort of one of the first times you've heard it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. And how do you feel? I like it. It's very exciting. I mean, when you think of writing a book, the amazing good luck to have it accepted by a publisher. It's a series of unexpected, amazing moments of validation. You think, I cannot believe someone has bothered printing this, not at Ryman, but <laughs> between covers. And then, you know, you go and... I went to see a bit of the audiobook being recorded and you thought, I can't believe that someone, you know, not just someone, Yara Greyjoy, is spending mm. 10 hours in a booth recording this. You know, it's it's constant pinch yourself territory, and I actually I did actually manage to uh, crowbar myself into the audio book recording because we did a little Q and A at the end of it, and then there was a chapter which we cut out from the book. My editor Selena, who is brilliant, said, I'm "Not sure about this chapter, Andrew." I said, well, "Fine," I sort of caved. Um, and then we said, why don't we read it for the audiobook? So it's uh, it's a little bit, because it's the only chapter that's from someone else's perspective. It's from the perspective of Davenport, the Prime Minister of this uh, So do Britain. you play Davenport? I, well, I do, I do a little bit of the voice, that's yeah. great. I yeah. can well imagine that. It's a slight, <laughs> yes, I can imagine that. He's a, he's an extraordinary character. I mean, he's a, he's a bastard. He's, yes. And you can well imagine that. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> and that was, as I say, a fantastic piece of the book read by Gemma Whelan and the audiobook has just come out to buy as a download you can get it on iTunes and all the usual places and whilst we're here do remember to subscribe to the Penguin podcast so you don't miss our free fortnightly episodes and you can also find us on your Alexa enabled device 
as we sort of briefly alluded to at the beginning, a lot of your work that you're known for is for comedy uh, with QI and also work writing for Private Eye and your improv show Ostentatious, which is this brilliant show where you and a team of others improvise a Jane Austen novel every (laughs) night, which is fantastic. Uh, How did it feel to move from comedy to thriller? How, How was that experience overall? Well, it was a surprise because, you know, reading has been the the thing I do more than anything else since I was a child. You know, I was an obsessive reader as a child and I still am as an adult. I knew that one day I wanted to write a book, but I had no conception really (laughs) for quite a long time that it was something you could actually do. I thought about it in the same way that you think maybe watching the Olympics, you think, oh, I'll probably get there one day. You know, you don't you don't ever actually join the dots. Once I start. Draw, yeah. You don't ever really draw a line to begin. So this idea really took me by surprise. I was not expecting to think of it. And then once I thought of it, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I just knew I had to write it. Because I've been reading so many different genres over the years, it didn't feel like a, a really, really strange turn. You know, it felt like something that was possibly in there. There's inspiration for this kind of thing. And a lot of comedians, I think, or a lot of people who start in comedy have huge wide ranges of interests. And I think if you just keep working and don't lose energy, or you, mm. you can bring all those to bear. I mean, someone like, you know, fantastic and now sadly missed Terry Jones and, and many others mm. like that. Did you sort of look at people like that? And even people like Stephen Fry or whoever, and Ian Hislop, that you're in a community of people who are quite used to leapfrogging over genre boundaries and just saying, no, this interests me, I want to do this now. I didn't really encounter any resistance from the industry because the tiny degree of success that has come before it they they said yeah that's that's not a problem for us we don't think you <laughs> we don't think you're pegged in the minds of the public as a comedian through and through you haven't hosted you the haven't generation game national you know. treasure status yeah. in terms of comedy yet yeah i mean if bruce forsyth had started writing you know um ssgb or whatever then there might have been a problem but yes. yeah no. or if jim davidson starts writing um, jane austen style exactly yeah <laughs> historical it's domestic fiction although i do i do kind of think one of the big touchstones for writing this book was the children of Men by P.D. James. Mm. What a career she had. She wrote 15 or so fabulous, gritty crime novels. Then she wrote The Children of Men, dystopian futuristic sci-fi, but quite close to now. Yes. And then she wrote a Jane Austen sequel to uh, Death Comes to Pemberley. And then she pegged out. I mean, what an interesting and strange career to Mm. have had. So let's move on to your next object. Uh, You mentioned the podcast. We've talked about it once or twice. Uh, This is a stuffed dog. Mm. Uh, So tell me about this stuffed dog. Ah, he's great. He is, he's a stuffed dog. He's called Station Jim. And he is visible to members of the public. Mm -hmm. You can go and see him at Slough Railway Station where he is in a glass case on the platform. Slough Station. Can't remember which platform. Think five. And this is somehow connected to the podcast No Such Thing as a Fish, the QI uh, spin-off podcast that you co-host. So please connect the two for me now, if you can. He is reasonably well connected with the podcast in that we've, we've covered him on the podcast and I think that all four of us who do the show have different areas of expertise and different obsessions as well. Dan is really interested in the moon and in yetis to give a, a random okay. example, you know, mm-hmm. so we all have different things that we really like. <laughs> My thing is animals being parachuted from planes, which has been done a huge number of times, especially with dogs. Dogs were parachuted in the Normandy landings uh, into northern France. And um, even recently, the US forces were parachuting in German shepherds uh, when they were trying to not, take on the Taliban. Not alone. 
Sure. Not alone, not alone. They're strapped you, to a you person. Have a dog strapped to your <laughs> okay, front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just imagine looking up and just seeing <laughs> 150 <laughs> Alsatians floating yeah. gently to earth. In it. No. Oh. Okay, so they're attached to somebody. They're attached to somebody. Anyway, okay. so look, I like parachuting animals, and again, you know, teams of therapists have tried to understand why, but you know, no answer yet. Mm-hmm. But. Station Jim is kind of tangentially related to these guys in that he was the station dog for Slough Railway Station in the, I think, late 19th century. And he had a little charity box on him, which he wore like a like a pistol in a holster. And you would put a coin in if you saw Station Jim and you were passing him by and you were feeling generous. And he was raising money as he went around the station for the widows and orphans of the men who'd been killed working on the railway. So he was a real dog. He was a real dog, yeah. But that wore a kind of little yeah. charity pouch. And he was pouch. the station mascot, if you like. Um, and he is still there to this day on the platform at Slough. I don't know why I like this idea so much. I think because... But he's stuffed now. He's stuffed now, So yeah. Jim has reached the end of his natural life. And Jim, now he's... Yeah. But he's still there. Yeah. He's come to the terminal to station. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he is in the buffers. He's in the sidings. But uh, I think there is still a little coin slot that you can make a donation through, which is very nice. But I think the station loved him so much that um, they decided to keep him when he died. And he, in life, he went on a couple of little adventures sometimes. He got on, <laughs> he got on a train and went on a little jaunt a couple of times. And he was found and returned. I feel, is this your next book? I think someone's already written it as a children's book, which I'm livid about. Um, But I I don't know. What does it represent to you then? Why have you chosen it for this in particular? Is it to do with the diversity of interests that you have as a team? It's partly that. It's partly that it's an amusing novelty dog and I think you can never really go wrong with one of those. Whenever I'm asked, I'm sure you've been asked this too, whenever you work in comedy, people always ask, what makes you laugh? And they always look like (laughs) they've asked you the most genius question. And in order to cope with the the sort of maybe 400 times I've been asked this in my life, as if it's the most original an extraordinary question I've ever heard and my answer always to what makes you laugh is a dog on a skateboard and I just find that it, it really just shuts down yeah. <laughs> the whole question and, and it's also true because a dog I mean a dog on a skateboard especially if it's wearing sunglasses exactly will literally never fail to make me laugh Yeah, and thanks to the internet I have access to dogs <laughs> on skateboards at any hour of 24/7, the day 24-7 yeah. so I do sympathise with the, the notion of the kind of mascot novelty dog I think it's something also about human eccentricity And again, this is probably why I have a big interest in the 17th and 18th centuries. It's much easier now to find and judge eccentricity. And I think lots of the world has become a bit more homogenous as a result. This was a weird quirk at Slough, of all places. And they had their own dog and he wore a little box and you could give him money. And I think that was kind of an official part of the railway when Station Jim was around. And so, yeah, human eccentricity in all of its forms, I really admire and delight in so that's probably why I've picked him hmm. well that's a lovely notion <laughs> I think I think it's a lovely sentiment that the sort of celebration of eccentricity and just thinking ahead to the future now because uh, you obviously this book has been a few years in the making and it, it's brilliant and it must have been a huge amount of work and research um, have you started on another one yet I have. have you yeah, yeah, so yeah. You're, okay so you're all you're, you're getting going that's yeah. good that's good well uh, am I allowed to ask just a very brief line about what it's about oh, you can ask what you like but uh, you won't tell me <laughs> <laughs> it's it's still at that kind of uh, larval stage, but I've got an idea that I really really like, and I've I know where and when it's going to be. It's not in the same world as the last day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be um, somewhere and somewhhen else, right? But it's it's also going to be exciting. Okay. That's the aim. Yeah. All right. Well, having read the last day, <laughs> I'll really look forward to that. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Andrew Hunter. Thank you so much. 
Middle England by Jonathan Coe. Taking place during and after Brexit, Middle England is a political comedy like no other. From the Midlands to London, Coe describes with his signature humour the lives of those affected by political unrest in modern Britain. On Thursday the 21st of October then, she left the university campus promptly at 3pm. She was in good spirits. Her seminar on the Russian romantics had been a success. She was already popular with her students. As usual, she had driven onto campus. Her grandfather Colin, his eyesight now being too weak for driving, had recently made her a gift of his ailing Toyota Yaris. The days when he bought British out of patriotic duty were long gone. The audiobook edition of Middle England is available to download now.